You're listening to Sermon Audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. 1 John 5, 6 through 12, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're, we're continuing our series through the letters of John, through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which brings us to this passage this morning. Again, 1st John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump right in for the sake of time, because we got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. So pray with me, and we'll jump into our text. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the forgiveness and redemption and righteousness and reconciliation to you that we have in Jesus. We thank you that by the blood of Jesus, through faith in him, we we can call one another brothers and sisters in Christ, despite our sin, despite being so undeserving uh, to be a part of your kingdom and family. And so we thank you and we praise you for that. Um, Lord, help that to be the centerpiece of our time together this morning, our, our one and only hope as a church, not only uh, as we worship together as a family this morning, but as we go out from here with the rest of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's jump into our text, starting in verse 6, the first part of verse 6, which says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. By what we're getting to it real quick as far as a lot of the questions. <laughs> so, by water and blood, I believe John is referring to Jesus's baptism, that being water, and his death on the cross, that being blood. That's the quick answer to what what I think John is talking about here. The reason I think this is the most probable interpretation of the passage is because of the historical context of the letter of 1 John itself. So let me kind of remind you of that. Remember that John is writing this letter to encourage his believing readers in Ephesus and the surrounding area to continue to grow and persevere in the faith and to combat uh, the, the Gnostic false teachers who had been causing problems there. That's the reason he's writing. And, and one of the lies that the Gnostic false teachers taught was, as Curtis Vaughn in his commentary in First John puts it, a heresy which differentiated between the man Jesus and the divine Christ. Its proponents held that Jesus was a mere man upon whom the divine Christ came at his, bat, or at his baptism and from whom the divine Christ departed before he died. Jesus was therefore born as a man and he died as a man, but for the brief period of his ministry begun at his baptism, the divine Christ was upon him. Vaughn goes on to say, this entire passage must be seen as a refutation of that heresy. In light of these facts, the most satisfactory interpretation is that which relates the water and blood to historical events in the life and ministry of Jesus by which he came. These events uh, were his baptism in the Jordan River and his death on the cross. John's opponents taught that the Christ came, quote unquote, by water, the baptism, but denied that he came by blood, the death. This accounts for the apostles' emphatic assertion that Jesus Christ came not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It was inconceivable to the Gnostics that the divine Christ should suffer the pain and shame of Calvary. To John, what happened at the cross was was the heart of the gospel. 
He insisted, therefore, that Jesus Christ came not simply by the water of baptism, as the Gnostics taught, but by the blood of the death also, which they denied. I think that's a really helpful summary as to what I think is going on here. So long story short, this is John emphatically preaching the truth that Jesus is not only fully man ever since he added to his divinity humanity in the incarnation, but is also fully God. Divinity did not, quote unquote, come upon him at his baptism and then, quote unquote, depart from him before he died. He is God himself, now in the flesh, ever since he added to his divinity humanity in the incarnation. But God the Son always has and always will eternally exist as God. Amen? Amen. In eternity past prior to the incarnation, throughout his earthly ministry and his first coming, in the here and now as we await his second coming, when he comes again, and in eternity future. He always has been and always will be God including not only at his baptism, but also at his crucifixion. Church, not only must we believe in the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, or we're believing in a counterfeit Jesus, one who doesn't save at all, but we do well to continue to study and further familiarize ourselves with the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus is, always has been, always will be God. Not only to help guard ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ against heretical false teaching like what the Gnostic false teachers taught and John is preaching against here, but also that we'd be better prepared as we go out on mission. Especially considering how many cults and how many false religions deny the divinity of Jesus in some way, shape, or form, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, just to name a few examples. So, church, your theology matters. It has an impact, not only on your life, but on the lives of others. And so keep studying. Keep wearing out your Bible. Amen? God may well use the next thing that you study in his word to refute a false teacher or to lead another lost sinner to Jesus. Verse six, the second part, he goes on. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. In other words, the spirit, by which John means the Holy Spirit, that's who he's talking about there. The spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit, testifies or bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the divine Christ, meaning the anointed one. That's what Christ means. The fully God, fully man, Savior foretold in the Old Testament who would save his people from their sins. Right? So the the Holy Spirit testifies to the fact that Jesus is the divine Christ who came. In other words, who accomplished salvation for his people who did all that was necessary, lived a perfect life in our place, and died a sacrificial death to pay for our sins in our place, that all who look to him by faith would be saved. Such that Jesus could say, it is finished. In John 19, 30. In other words, mission accomplished. (laughs) Righteousness fulfilled. Sin atoned for, for all who would look to him by faith. Amen? The Spirit testifies or bears witness that this is Jesus uh, who is, um, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I misread my own notes. Uh, the Spirit testifies or bears witness that this is who Jesus is. That's that I totally missed an is there and it changed the sentence. Um, he, he testifies. I'll give you in a few ways. Um, one, in God's word, in divinely inspiring the authors of Scripture to write what they wrote about Jesus, including what John is writing about Jesus in this letter. Right. Does that make sense? Secondly, the, the Spirit testifies or bears witness that this is who Jesus is in his work of regeneration, in his causing us to be born again, opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we, we could even believe in it and, and be saved to begin with. And third example, the, the, the Spirit testifies, bears witness that this is who Jesus is in his continuing work of sanctification in the lives of his people in empowering us to continue to see and to grow in our understanding of the truth of the gospel and to live accordingly, albeit imperfectly, until either we die or Christ returns, and so forth. <laughs> um, I believe John has the general witness of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his first coming in mind here, which would include these things we just talked about and whatever other biblical ways you can think of that the Holy Spirit does this. Those are just three examples. And the Holy Spirit does this. He, he bears witness that Jesus is the divine Christ who has come and has done all that's necessary that all who look to him by faith would be saved. As John says, because the Spirit is the truth. In other words, because his very nature is truth. He is God who never lies. As it says in, in Titus 1-2, that God never lies. So because the Holy Spirit's very nature is truth, it is pleasing to him to bear witness to the most important truth that anyone can reckon with. And that's who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished. Whether someone accepts the truth that, that Jesus is the fully God, fully man, one and only Savior who has already done all that's necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place that all who look to him by faith would be saved or not is literally a matter of spiritual life and death. It determines whether someone is destined for eternal life with God or eternal punishment in hell. Amen? So it is fitting that the Holy Spirit, whose very nature is truth, would be pleased to bear witness to this most important, literally, of truths. And because his very nature is truth, again, he never lies, we can trust what he says. In all things, in all things that the Holy Spirit testifies to, but... Namely here, his testimony about who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished, looking back at our text. So the question is this, do you, do you trust God the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning God the Son, Jesus? Do you have faith in the one true gospel? Do you believe that Jesus is the fully God, fully man, one and only Savior who has already done all that's necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place that all who look to him by faith would be saved as revealed in the word of God or not? Do you believe that or not? If not, repent and put true saving faith in Christ while there's still time. And if the answer to that question is yes, 
In other words, you are a Christian, right? Are there times that you live out of step with the truth of who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished? And to put it bluntly, if you're a Christian and you're still alive right now, then the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> right? There, there are times that you live out of step with the truth of who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished. So if there's an area of your life that comes to mind right now when thinking about that, where you know that's true of you, then repent and start living accordingly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses seven and eight. John says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. John mentions here three that testify, and again, in other words, bear witness to who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished. Firstly, the spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, we've already talked about this, but just to get on the same page. So the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, who bears witness to Jesus being the Christ, the fully God, fully man, Savior foretold in the Old Testament, who came, who has already done all that's necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place that all who look to him by faith would be saved. The Spirit does so, the Holy Spirit does so via God's word, via his work of regeneration, and his continuing work of sanctification in the lives of his people, which we already talked about earlier, just to name a few ways. Right, this, the second of, of these witnesses uh, who, just, who, who testify to who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished is the water. Again, meaning the baptism of Jesus. That's what I believe John is referring to here, which bears witness as to who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished when we look back at the narrative, so let's look back at the narrative of Jesus' baptism, because this is one that if you don't look back at it, you might miss what John is driving at. Uh, Matthew three thirteen through 17, I'll just read. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized by him. Uh, John the Baptist. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be uh, so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We see here that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, we see God the Father, uh, the voice from heaven here, identified Jesus as the messianic son of God, a title, by the way, with divine connotations as we look at the rest of scripture. And we see God the Holy Spirit anoint Jesus, show that he's been set apart, chosen by God for a special task by descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And Christ the title synonymous with the fully God, fully man, savior of the people of God foretold in the Old Testament means what again? What, what does Christ mean again? Oh yeah, anointed one. Church, to put it bluntly, if this were a movie, you'd say the writing were a little on the nose. That's, that's how obvious that is looking at the baptism of Jesus. That's how much Jesus' baptism bears witness to who he is and what his con coming has accomplished. Amen? So third witness of, of the three that testify, bear witness to who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished that John mentions here is the blood, meaning Jesus' death on the cross. 
which bears witness as to who Jesus is and what his coming has accomplished in about a thousand ways. <laughs> we could really spend all of our time there, but I'll highlight just one. It fulfilled a plethora of messianic prophecies showing that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the fully God, fully man, savior of the people of God foretold in the Old Testament. One such example, Isaiah 53. Open with me Isaiah 53, because I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read all of it. So Isaiah 53 says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, uh, before, for, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one uh, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That sound familiar? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken uh, for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He sees his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. <laughs> and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' death, in his death, fulfilled a plethora of messianic prophecies showing that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Again, the, the fully God, fully man, savior of the people of God foretold in the Old Testament. So many of those prophecies were, were fulfilled in the death of Jesus, which means he has accomplished what this and other messianic prophecies said that he would accomplish in his coming, in his first coming right? Namely, doing all that's necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place that all who look to him by faith would be saved. Amen? These three, again, the, the Holy Spirit, the baptism, and the crucifixion of Jesus, testify, or in other words, bear witness to who Jesus is and what his first coming has accomplished. You can picture them like witnesses in a courtroom. 
That's the picture that John is painting here. And as John says at the end of verse 8, these three agree. All agree that Jesus is the Christ. Again, the fully God, fully man, Savior of the people of God foretold in the Old Testament. And that, all he, did, that he did all that was necessary that all who looked to him by faith would be saved via his perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross in our place. They all agree on this. There's also something uh, else going on here that's pretty interesting that, that Curtis Vaughn, Vaughn summarizes well that, that I want to highlight. He says this, in, in these words, there is an obvious allusion to the stipulation of the Mosaic law requiring the corroborative evidence of two or three witnesses, which just is a footnote from me, which is then repeated by Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 in regard to church discipline. He then goes on to say, the effect here is to underscore the trustworthiness of the witness to Jesus Christ. In other words, these three witnesses agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of all who look to him by faith via his finished works on their behalf, and their testimony is trustworthy. That's the picture that's being painted. To give you a picture, trustworthy enough in this illustration to have put an Israelite to death under the old covenant or to put someone out of the church in the new covenant. That's the trustworthiness of these witnesses as to who Jesus is and what his finished works on our behalf has accomplished. Verses 9 through 12. Uh, we're we're going to power through verses 9 to, through 12 because they're pretty self-explanatory. Um, so we'll start with verse 9 and 10. We're going to go through these parts a little quicker. Now that we've unpacked a lot of that, it's easier to understand the, the rest of it. So verse 9 and 10, he says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. So let's start with, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Meaning, if we accept the testimony of men on the basis of two or three witnesses, like in church discipline, for example, how much more should we accept the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son via these three witnesses he's given us? The Holy Spirit and the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus. Give you a picture again. If we accept the testimony of men who definitely can and sometimes do lie, <laughs> right? On the basis of two or three witnesses, how much more should we accept the testimony of God who never lies concerning his son via these three witnesses that he's given us? Does that make sense? That's, I think, what John is driving at here. He goes on, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself, uh, the testimony in himself being the Holy Spirit, that's, I think, what, what John is referring to here. God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within every believer and continues to bear witness within us to the truth of the gospel and who empowers us to keep going and keep growing in the faith until we die or Christ returns. And whose work within us continues to produce a changed life, causes us to be more like Jesus more and more each day, which is all the more evidence of the truth of the gospel because it's the only thing that produces this kind of change, true, lasting, continual transformation in the lives of sinners. Amen? He goes on to say, 
Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, whoever, uh, sorry, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Meaning, there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. We either believe God's testimony concerning his son, that he is the Christ who has done all that is necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place, that through faith in him we'd be saved, or we are rejecting God's testimony and calling him who never lies a liar. Those are your two options. (laughs) And the implication is that we'll be punished if we uh, reject God's testimony concerning his son and call him a liar who never lies, the implication here is that we'll be punished as those who call truth lies and lies truth. Meaning we'll be punished as liars. Meaning we'll be sentenced to hell apart from Jesus because we've rejected the only payment that satisfies the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins in our place, and that's Christ himself. Amen? which brings us to 11 and 12. Again, we'll go through quickly. And this is the testimony that God gave us. Sorry, man, I'm botching my own readings. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I need to slow down. It's just too much. (laughs) I'm going going too fast. So meaning, because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, as we see in John 14, 6, we either, A, have the Son by faith, by believing God's testimony about him, that he is the Christ, who has done all that's necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, as it says in John three sixteen, And we have eternal life if we believe that. That's option one. Or B, option two, We do not have the Son of God by faith. I.e., we reject God's testimony about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the only way to a reconciled relationship with God, and our only path to not perish but have eternal life by our never believing in him that we'd be saved. And if that's true of us, we do not have eternal life. There is no third option. We either believe in Jesus and have eternal life or we reject him and we don't and are destined for hell instead. That's it. There are no third option. There is no third option. Because if we reject Christ, we won't have eternal life and we'll be destined for hell instead because we've rejected the only payment that satisfies the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins in our place. And again, that's Christ himself. John is saying this both, he's highlighting this truth both, I think, number one, to warn his readers not to follow the Gnostic false teachers who in their rejection of Jesus namely here his his deity and that he himself is the Christ, as we saw earlier, were headed to hell if they didn't repent. So this this is a giant caution bridge out sign from John here. He's saying, do not follow them off the cliff they're headed for if they never repent and believe in the one true gospel. So I think that that's the first reason I think John is saying what he's saying here. And, And secondly, to encourage his readers who do have faith in Jesus that we do indeed have eternal life. The Holman New Testament commentary summarizes this well. They say this, 
So what is being testified to? That eternal life comes from God through his son Jesus and through no other way. This statement is very likely directed at the Antichrist. In other words, the Gnostic false teachers who charged that the readers did not really have eternal life through faith in Christ, i.e., you're not really saved. You don't really get it. You don't really have eternal life unless you believe our false gospel. They go on to say, Scripture makes it clear that we do have eternal life through Jesus. To deny this is to deny God's testimony and to call God a liar. In other words, don't listen to them, these Gnostic false teachers preaching this false gospel saying you don't have really and truly, you don't really have eternal life in Jesus. Don't listen to them because if you have faith in Christ, the truth is that you're saved and they're not. Amen? So I think the idea here is don't listen to the currently drowning man about the key to not drowning. You know more about that than they do. <laughs> I think that's the idea here. I.e., you who believe in Christ actually know and possess the one and only key to not drowning, to not being destined for hell, but instead having eternal life in Christ, and they don't. They don't know and possess that. In closing, how, how do we respond to this text? Well, I want just two things I'd like us to ask ourselves as we close, as we wrap up this morning. Number one, do I have eternal life? Do I have eternal life? Verse 12 says, whoever has the Son, again by faith, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, again by faith, does not have life. So do you have faith in Jesus, the Son of God? Do you believe God's testimony about him that he is the Christ who has done all that's necessary via his perfect life and sacrificial death in our place that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life as it says in John 3.16. Do you believe that? If not, repent and put true saving faith in Christ that you'd be saved from the wrath you deserve that you'd not perish but have eternal life while there's still time. To give you a picture, picture, grab the one and only life preserver that is Christ through faith in him. Or one day you won't just be drowning, i.e. destined for hell, you'll be drowned. <laughs> Actually sentenced to hell for your sins. So repent and put true saving faith in Christ that you'd be saved while there's still time. And secondly, second question to ask ourselves. If so... If I do have eternal life through faith in Jesus, am I living that way? Am I living that way? Not only in my relationship, in fellowship with the Lord, but as I go out on mission in particular. I want to highlight this. Let me ask this. Am I living like I know the one and only key to not drowning, to not being destined for hell, but instead having eternal life? in Christ in a world full of drowning people. With that level of confidence and boldness and compassion and so forth as I go out on mission. If not, church, let's repent and start living like that's true because it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that 
those of us who have faith in Jesus have been saved from drowning, have been saved from being destined for hell and, and instead now have eternal life through faith in him. We thank you and we praise you for that, for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us in, in, in saving us as sinners despite our sin. We thank you for the perfect life and sacrificial death in our place that our sins would be paid for and we'd be reconciled to you through faith in Jesus and, and his finished works on our behalf, Lord. I pray that that would be, again, our hope and the centerpiece of the rest of our time of worship together as a family this morning and as we go out from here as a church family um, with the rest of our lives uh, on mission, knowing we have the uh, key, the one and only key to not drowning, and that's faith in Jesus and his finished works on our behalf. And so, Lord, help us to go preach the gospel to a lost world full of drowning people in light of that truth. We pray these things in your name, amen.